Uh, please take your Bibles and open to 2 Samuel chapter 18. 2 Samuel chapter 18, as we continue um, with the, the life of David, um, that we've called God, after God's own heart. Now this morning, we're going to be looking at a very complicated text. We'll be looking at chapter, all of chapter 18 and then the first few verses of chapter 19. And my title this morning is, When Justice Triumphs Over Love. When justice triumphs over love. Now, here's a question. Do you long for justice? Do you long for justice to be done? Do you long for compassion? For mercy? For grace? Do you long for that? Which do you want to win the day? What do you want to be the hallmark of a society? What do you want for murderers and rapists and child molesters? Well, that's too easy. Just think about that for a second. That's easy. That's an easy question. What do you want for your own child that gets innocently caught up in drugs or petty theft? You see, it's complicated, isn't it? Ever since the Garden of Eden, there has been a tension between love and justice that has been insolvable or unsolvable. Sin has so affected our world to the point where brokenness has penetrated every facet of our being and our understanding. And so, this brokenness from sin leads only to more brokenness, which leads to more complexities. You see, as I've gotten older, things are rarely as black and white as we would pretend they'd be. Things are rarely as black and white as we would assume them to be or hope they would be. And what I want you to know is that the Bible doesn't ignore that tension between love and justice. The Bible fully embraces it. The Bible says that God is sovereign and that sin breaks everything. And that that suffering then leads to sorrow. That Sin, breaking everything, leads to suffering and sorrow. And 2 Samuel 18 is a microcosm, a small picture of that entire reality. This chapter shows us the incredible tension, tension of a father's love, David, for Absalom, and the necessity of justice for a rebel and a traitor. The kingdom cannot be safe as long as insurrection abounds. So this is a complicated text, so I'm going, to use, I'm going to frame all of my outline around complexities. And complexity means it ain't simple. Complexity means it's complicated, okay? So the first, I'm going to read, I will read this as we go through it because it's a long text, okay? So the first section is the complexity of war. The complexity of war. Now, I want to, I want to, the text begins with just how complex logistics and strategies are in war. Look at verses 1 through 4. It says, then David mustered the men. Remember, they've been out in hiding. It says, then David mustered the men who were with him and set them over commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai the Gittite, the Philistine, most likely in charge of all of the Palathites, the Carathites, and the Gittites. And the king said to the men, he says there, 
I myself will also go out with you. But the men said, You shall not go out, for if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you send help from the city. And the king said to them, Whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate while the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. So right here you see the complexities of logistics and strategy. So David musters and organizes his men into three armies under Joab, Joab's brother Abishai, and Ittai, though we're not sure how many men David actually have fighting for him. And then second, David prepares to go out with them to battle, but they say that the better choice for the king is to remain in Mahanaim, the fortified city, so that he can send aid from the city where there are reserved troops and that he would be protected. After all, the only thing that matters in this insurrection is King David. If King David falls, Absalom wins, no matter what. So the king must be protected. But then, so you have the complexities of logistics and strategy of war, but then you have the complexities of a king and a loving father. Look at verse 5, and this is the tension of the whole text before us. It says there, And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. What a word to give the men going out to risk their lives for you and your kingdom. These aren't the words of a king protecting his kingdom. These are the words of a loving father seeking to protect a son. That's what's happening here. But I want you to note in this the confidence of David. You see, David can't order his generals to protect Absalom unless he is sure they're going to have that opportunity and win. David assumes here he will prevail and that they will actually have the opportunity to protect Absalom in this. But remember, this is war. How can Absalom be taken alive in battle when he'll be surrounded by his guards and by thousands more men than David has? Is this just wishful thinking on the part of David? After all, the whole hallmark of David's entire kingdom came in 2 Samuel 8 when it said that the king did justice and righteousness for all of his people. How is it justice and righteousness to protect Absalom when he's risking the lives of all of David's men? That's the complexities of war involving a king and the tension of being a king and a loving father. But then there's the complexities of the terrain in battle. Look at verses 6 through 8. This is foreshadowing of what's going to happen. He says, So the army went out into the field against Israel. That's David's men against all of Israel. And the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated by the servants of David. And the loss there was great on that day. 20,000 men. Two times what they said David was worth. And the battle spread over the face of all the country. And the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. Now all commanders in the military know that terrain is a crucial feature of any battle. And it can many times determine the battle. 
And the author here tells us that this battle sprawls across the plains and ends up in the forest of Ephraim. Now, scholars aren't completely sure where that is, but it's somewhere up north of Jerusalem beside the Jabbok going out to the east and the Jordan running north and south. It was most likely in the vicinity of Mahanaim where David resided during the battle. Now, a forest, especially in Israel, those of us that just got back from there, this forest would have been thickly wooded and would have included cliffs and ravines and other potential dangers for soldiers. After all, you can't really march in uniform groups into battle in a forest. There was a great defeat that day, and the text tells us 20,000 men died and that the forest killed more people than the soldiers. Now, it seems here as though the very land of Israel is fighting against David, uh, fighting for David against Absalom. The very land of Israel is fighting for him. That's what it seems. That's the complexity of war. But notice next the complexity of justice. The complexity of justice. Look at verses 9 through 16 where we come upon Absalom in the heat of battle. It says there, And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under, a, under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. And Joab said to the man who told him, What? You saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to have given you ten pieces of silver and a hero's belt. But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, that's quite a bit more than ten, quite a bit more heavy, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you in Abishai and Ittai, For my sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life and there's nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. And Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. And Joab took three javelins in his hand and thrust him into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, bearers surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. And Joab blew the trumpet, and the troops came back from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained them. Here we learn how Absalom is captured, right? The text says that he happened to meet some of the soldiers of David. Absalom here appears to be fleeing from battle because he's not surrounded by his bodyguard or any of his armor bearers. And he's caught in the branches riding his mule of a great oak tree. Now, many believe that he's caught by his hair. The text doesn't say that. It just says that his head got caught in the branches. This seems to be, again, the land fighting for David and capturing his enemy. And so here, the news then goes to Joab of, of Absalom hanging helplessly in the tree. And we get a picture here of two people with competing interests. Right? You have Joab's interest and the interest of the kingdom, and you have this soldier's interest for his own life. Right? The soldier knew his king. 
he particularly remembered that the king had commanded them to not kill Absalom. And he said, I am not going to deal treacherously with my own life. I'm not taking my own life into my own hands here, Joab. So that's the question, though. The question is, what is justice? Should he kill Absalom or obey the king? After all, why is he in the battle? Why is he at war? He's not at war because, really because of David. He's at war because of Absalom. Which is justice? But the soldier did not, not only knew, this is what makes it complex, he didn't just know David. He knew Joab. He knew Joab's reputation. If David was displeased with what had happened, Joab would have thrown him under the bus, no questions asked. Said, why did you kill Absalom? Joab would have been like, he did it. That guy. What good's a belt and ten pieces of silver when your life is on the line, right? It's clear that this soldier feared David much more than he feared Joab. And this shows us how messed up this situation really is. And I will just say self-preservation is an incredible incentive. Anybody will do almost anything when their life is on the line. So knowing that this soldier is telling the truth about Joab's reputation, we get this hilarious reply, right? Joab's like, I don't have time for you. Get out of my way. I'm going to go take care of business. But don't miss this here. Don't miss this here. With Absalom hanging in this tree, this providential moment in this battle provides Joab an opportunity to obey the word of King David. At the beginning of the day, Joab thought, we'll never take him alive. He's going to be killed by an archer or he's going to be killed in some form of the battle. There's no chance we'll take him alive, so he just ignores David and goes out. But now that he's hanging in a tree, Joab has an opportunity to obey the words of the king. But Joab here sees the conflict between love and justice. And he chooses justice. Joab isn't conflicted about this at all like David is. Maybe he's thinking back of how Absalom tricked him into bringing him back to Jerusalem or how Absalom set his field on fire. But either way, Joab acts decisively. He acts, though, for the good of the kingdom. Joab has his own shares, shares of issues, but here he acts for the good of the kingdom. We're told in short fashion he takes three spears and he plunges them into Absalom's heart while he's in the li- alive. And then his armor bearers surround Absalom to make sure that the deed is done. And then, though he's reputation, Joab has a reputation of being a man of blood, immediately what does he do? He calls off the battle. He restrains the soldiers from pursuing Absalom's men, and thus he spares a great many more soldiers that would have died that day. It would have been more than 20,000 had not Joab called them off. But you have to ask the question, why does this ultimately happen? Why is, why is Absalom suspended in the tree, and why does Joab give him the opportunity to give him justice? And the answer is, is because 2 Samuel 17, 4 says this, the Lord, brought, the Lord intended to bring harm on Absalom. God intended for Absalom to die for his sins of lifting his hand against David's anointed, even though he was, he was God's instrument in bringing um, retribution on David. And that brings us to this little short section of Absalom's funeral. The text tells us about Absalom's funeral. Look at verses 17 and 18. It says there, And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones. 
And all Israel fled, everyone to his house. Now Absalom, in this is his obituary, now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. And he called the pillar after his own name, and it is called Absalom's Monument to this day. This is the short commentary of Absalom's life, and it is sad indeed. We've seen throughout this whole saga in these last few chapters that Absalom at every turn chooses the path of pride and vanity. That's why they say he was most likely caught by his hair in the tree, because that was a sign of his pride. But if you notice in the text, that's also why Absalom's riding a mule into battle, which is a king's, um, which is a king's, uh, a symbol of king, of king kingship, instead of a war horse or a chariot. He's choosing what it looks like vanity and pride, and the symbol of royalty, even in the middle of battle. You can also see his folly and vanity in the way that he's buried. You go, what do you mean, Jacob? You see in the Bible, those that are buried in pits with stones heaped on them are under the curse of God. He goes all the way back, he joins the likes of Achan, who was thrown into a pit after his rebellion. The king of Ai, who was hung on a tree before being thrown in a pit. Joshua 10 also records the same end for the five kings who arrayed themselves against Israel. They were all hung from trees before being thrown into pits and covered with stones. It's a traitor's burial. Absalom isn't buried in the tombs of his father or of his family, which would have been an honor and a dignity. He's left to rot in a pit all alone. The cursed traitor's burial. He is in fact, because of where this battle took place, he is in fact buried east of the Jordan and outside of the promised land altogether. Cursed from God's people. That's the folly of Absalom. But lastly, you see it in his insatiable desire to only live for his own name. The writer says earlier that Absalom had three sons, but at some point they must have died early in childhood. Maybe they all died young, we can't know. But what we know is that verse 18 tells us that Absalom built a monument for his own name in the king's valley. That's the valley of kings. Absalom is no king, but you see his great desire for power. Shows us the true desire of his heart. He desired to be remembered as a great king and hero. But those that are great, hear me, those that are great need not build monuments for themselves. Somebody else will do that. Here, he must do it for himself, much like Saul had done. Now listen, this is ultimately the vanity of mankind. The ultimate statement that we must be the center of the universe and the captains of our own souls. Those who live as though God will not have the final say over our lives also commit Absalom's folly. Now, here's the point. Absalom, hear me, for those of you that want to build great names for yourself in this world and want to be remembered for all the wrong things and not be remembered as someone who just simply walked with Jesus, Absalom will not be remembered for his famous monument, but instead for his prideful folly. His life and monument serve as a reminder of what will certainly happen to all of those who lift their hand and their heel against God's anointed king. Yeah, he's got a monument out in the King's Valley, but he's buried in a pit as a traitor. Be careful what you live for. And notice next the complexities of the gospel. The complexity of the gospel. I've got to go fast. Verses 19 
through 32. It says there, Then Ahimehaz, the son of Zadok, said, Let me run and carry news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. And Joab said to him, You are not to carry the news today. You may carry news another day. But today you shall carry no news because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to the Cushite, Go, tell the king what you have seen. And the Cushite bowed before Joab and ran. Then Ahimehaz, the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, Come what may, let me also run after the Cushite. And Joab said, Why will you run, my son, seeing that you will have no reward for the news? Come what may, he said, I will run. So he said to him, Run. Then Ahimehaz ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. Now David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall. And when he lifted up his eyes and looked, he saw a man running alone. And the watchman called out and told the king, and the king said, If he is alone, he, is, he brings news in his mouth. And he drew nearer and nearer, and the watchman saw another man running. And the watchman called to the gate and said, See, another man running alone. And the king said, He also brings news. And the watchman said, I think the first is the running like the, young, like the running of Ahimehaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, He is a good man and comes with good news. Then Ahimehaz cried out to the king, All is well. And he bowed before the king with his face to the ground and said, Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord the king. And the king said, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And Ahimehaz answered, When Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, when Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I do not know what it was. And the king said, turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. And behold, the Cushite came. And the Cushite said, good news, that's gospel. Gospel for my lord the king. For the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. And the king said to the Cushite, is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, may the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up in his chamber over the gate and wept. And as he wept, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. We're told here how David gets the news in Mahanaim. Ahimehaz was the son of Zadok the priest who, was, who had been part of David's intelligence and resistance operation. And he wants to be the one to carry the news to David. He had stood by David faithfully and wants to see this through. But Joab doesn't think he's the man for the job. Joab knows David's history of killing messengers who bring them what they thought was good news. Gospel news. So instead he chooses a foreigner. A Cushite, most likely one of his servants, to carry the news. But Ahimehaz will not be denied. He begs and pleads, and eventually Joab relents and assumes, well, the Cushite will outrun him. He's got a good head start. But he takes a shortcut by a, more, by a different route and outruns him to David. And we're told here that the watchman sees it coming and sees them running, and David assumes that Ahimehaz is a good man who's going, coming first, and he has good news in his mouth. David assumes the best here. But Ahimehaz comes with only half of the gospel. Only half of the truth. He's only bringing half of the news to David. He tells David of the victory that's been won. 
David expected that from the beginning. But David really only wants to know what? The battle of his, the news of his son. Again, the tension here of a king and of a father. And what does Ahimehaz do? He refuses to give David the whole news. He says he doesn't know. There was a commotion. I don't know what happened. That's simply not true. He absolutely knows what happened. He was there. He says, you, Joab says, you can't carry the news. Why? Because the king's son is dead. He absolutely knows what happened. Joab told him plainly. Maybe Joab knew that Ahimehaz would flinch when it came time to give the whole truth. Now comes the Cushite bearing the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And he says he has gospel news for the king. And he says what? David's been rescued from the insurrectionists. What about Absalom? May all my enemies, may all the enemies of the king end up like that man. He does not shy away from it. Now I call this section the complexity of the gospel simply because the truth is that the gospel isn't good news for everybody. Have you ever thought about that? The gospel actually isn't good news for everybody. It certainly isn't good news for David here. He doesn't receive it as good news. And it's certainly not those good news for those who continue in their rebellion against God's king. The good news is only good because the bad news is so bad. The gospel includes the news that rebels will ultimately face justice one day before King Jesus. And ultimately that will happen when Jesus returns and judges the nations. Jesus says this himself in Matthew 13. He says, The Son of Man will send angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. That's going to happen one day. He says, Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. And Revelation ends with the same picture that the cowardly, the faithful, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and liars will all have their portion in the lake of fire. The gospel isn't good news for any of those. Do you understand how complex that is? You've got to understand that this is ultimately what believers are praying for when they pray your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven because one day Jesus will bring justice to all those who have rebelled against the king. And now let's finish with the complexity of grief. The complexity of grief. Look at verses, look there following, verses chapter 19, 1 through, 1 through 8. As we wrap this up. It says, it was told Joab... Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So he's back in Mahanaim. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as a people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. And the king covered his face and the king cried with a loud voice, Oh, oh my son Absalom, oh Absalom my son, my son. The author is belaboring the point here of David's grief. Then Joab came into the house of the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. You have made it clear today that the commanders and servants are nothing to you. 
For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us who were and all of us were dead today, that you would be pleased. Now therefore arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants, for I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate. And the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate. And all the people came before the king. And as we see here, the gospel isn't received as good news by the king. He's overflowing with grief. But justice has been done. And David knows it. And yet David is a loving father, and he weeps deeply over his son. Again, grief is complex by itself. Amen? Grief is complex. How much more so in the case of David here? Now, I want to point out a couple things that make this, this, this even more complex for David. Just bear with me for just a few more minutes. First, David wishes that he would have died instead of Absalom. Now, you might say, well, any parent would choose that. I'll grant that point. But David is here because of David's own sin. Absalom is dead because of David's own sin. God had told David specifically that David would not die for his sin, but that God would punish him by bringing the sword upon his own family. So I think David's plea here is a recognition that if he had simply died for his own sins, if God would have simply judged me and taken me for my sin, then Absalom would still be alive. And so David's own guilt is multiplying his grief. Listen, oh how our own guilt can multiply our own grief. Just think about that at funerals and at other moments. We at those moments of our deepest grief, we wish that things could have been differently. Or we wish that we would have said things that needed to be said. Or left unsaid things that we might have wrongfully said. David's grief is compounded by his own guilt. And the end of David's sin is the death of his own son. Second, and along that same point, David's grief is complicated because Absalom is guilty. He's guilty as well in all of this. Absalom has lifted up his hand against the Lord's anointed. And David knew from his own life experience that anyone who lifts their hand against the Lord's anointed is deserving of death. In fact, David executed the Amalekite that put Saul to death on Mount Gilboa. David said, justice demands you died because you yourself confessed you lifted your hand against the Lord's anointed. Listen, Absalom is no different than that man. David can grieve both his own guilt and Absalom's guilt in this situation. But third, another complexity here is that David's grief overshadows the rightful posture towards justice. Think about that for a second. David's grief overshadows a right posture towards justice. David's grief turns the victory of David's soldiers into weeping and shame. Think about that for a second. There should be no shame in regards to justice being done. There should be no shame in regards to justice being done. Shame should be reserved for injustice and unrighteousness. It is a shame when a nation doesn't do things that are just. It is never a shame when someone does what is just. And that leads us to Joab's rebuke. 
Once again, Joab is decisive. It's a stinging rebuke, but a necessary one. Though Joab overstates his case, the essential truth is clear. Would David weep if injustice had prevailed and all of his family and soldiers died and Absalom lived? What's the answer to that question? The answer is a resounding no. No, David should not weep if all of his soldiers die and Absalom lives. So David is getting this backwards. David is not expressing the right kind of posture to this situation before the kingdom. A kingdom cannot survive that rejoices over unrighteousness and is ashamed of justice. Think about that. In this case, lives have been saved. And those that saved David's life and the life of the rest of his family should be respected and honored. There is a right time for grief, yes. But for this particular situation, this is not the right time, David. Right now, you need to acknowledge that justice has been done, however flawed it may have been. Now, let me conclude. I want to tie this back to that idea I started with. Our longing for love and justice and how we long for it to be administered in perfect harmony. We want love and justice to meet. And this story in 2 Samuel doesn't fulfill that longing at all. No matter which character you focus on, it's not a triumph. Absalom fails. David fails. Joab protects the king by disobeying him. David's throne is secured, but he loses another son. And we see from this next chapter that things aren't tied up neatly in a bow like a Hollywood movie. And that's because David's kingdom isn't the full or final kingdom. All of this is meant to point towards God's perfect King Jesus. So hear me. When we feel that same longing for love and justice, and we know that it cannot meet perfectly in this world, we have to rely on the same thing that David had to depend on. The promised love and justice of God. Not just about the things we see on the news, but all the slights, all the betrayals, and all the hurts we experience each day. We have to recognize that our longing for love and justice are only ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Particularly Jesus on the cross. That is the only place where love and justice met perfectly in this world. Where the demands of God's justice were poured out on Christ and the love of God for rebel sinners was fully displayed. And hear me, in the world to come, it will be done again. As Christ removes all rebels and establishes justice forever, and even then, Christ will wipe away every tear from our eyes. I think because the demands of justice will have to be met even for those that we had loved when they also have chosen not to follow Jesus. Love and justice will have to be done. And perfect love and justice. And those, who, those, those of us that day will rejoice in the perfect love and justice of God. May the Lord add a blessing to the preaching of his word. This morning, if you do not know Jesus, repent. Come to the king. Acknowledge Jesus. Because there's coming a day you will stand before him. And on that day, believe me, you will not face the love of God. You will face the justice of God. You see, heaven is completely filled with people who don't deserve to be there. They are only there by the grace and mercy of Jesus. There is not one person who deserves to be there save Jesus. But hell is completely filled with people who only deserve to be there. There is no complaint 
in hell for people in the deserving of justice. So today, if you know Jesus, if you don't know Jesus, repent. Come find God's demands for justice met in Christ for you as your sins are placed on him and his righteousness on you. This morning, if you're looking for a church home, we invite you to be a part of ours. This morning, if you're living like Absalom as a rebel, lay down your arms and repent. Father, would you bless the preaching of your word now as we sing. We pray that you would speak and that Jesus would be glorified in all things. We ask this in his name.